Would you turn with me this morning to Titus chapter 1 in your Bible? We spent some time in Titus chapter 1 a couple of months ago as we've been thinking about this process of someone who's qualified for ministry, becoming an overseer in the church. We read the qualifications here that Paul gives to Titus as he's there in Crete. I'd like to read from verse 5 down through verse 9. Let's look at these verses together. Titus 1, verses 5 down through 9. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. The idea is ready to fight, given to blows. Not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And then he gives the reason for that last qualification. The presence of rebels, empty talkers, deceivers, those who must be silenced. Verse 9 is an additional qualification. We didn't take the time to look at it the last time we looked at Titus 1. wanted to give special attention to this particular qualification. Holding fast the faithful word is the title of the message. And you see that in the first words there in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, who's on his journey to the celestial city, comes to interpreter. Interpreter says to Christian, come in, I will show thee what that which will be profitable to thee. So he commanded his man to light the candle and bid Christian follow him. So he had him into a private room and bid his man open a door in which when he had done, Christian saw the picture of a very grave or serious person hang up against a wall. And this was the fashion of it. It had eyes lifted up to heaven the best of books in his hand, the law of truth was written on his lips, the world was behind his back, it stood as if it pleaded with men, and a crown of gold did hang over its head. Then said Christian, what means this? And Bunyan writes, interpreter's answer, the man whose picture this is is one of a thousand, He can beget children, travail in birth with children, and nurse them himself when they are born. And then he cites 1 Corinthians 4.15, Galatians 4.19. One in a thousand. That was the title of a book written by a man named Errol Hulse. The Calling and Work of a Pastor. As he wrote that little book, he talked about the responsibilities of pastors and elders Generally speaking, participation in practical evangelism, visitation of the flock, attendance at prayer meetings, gentleness and generosity, hospitality, absolute fidelity and loyalty to each other, that is, the elders to one another, affectionate attendance by the elders to the needs of the pastor and his family, and the encouragement of the deacons and their responsibilities. And then he went on to specify a little bit more. He said, after these basics, the following responsibilities are to be observed. The comprehensive spiritual oversight of the flock. 
compassionate, caring, teaching, and praying for all the members and adherents. Regulating all gatherings for public worship, including music, so that it is not hijacked and controlled by a segment of the church. Giving heed to all the flock by watching over them and praying for them by organizing and encouraging the visitation of the sick, restoration of backsliders, the correction of the ignorant, the guidance of those ready to stumble, the encouragement of fellowship and the integration into union of all the members, the encouragement of full use of gifts within the membership, overseeing the administration of baptism and reception into church membership, the preparation of candidates to present to the church and their instruction and their responsibilities, the rule of the church with respect to discipline by lovingly yet firmly dealing with those who refuse to fulfill their responsibilities, or who are in a state of decline, sin, or rebellion, the application of disciplinary measures when it is quite clear that all other means of persuasion have failed, maintaining the primacy of prayer in families in the corporate life of the church, encouraging the work of evangelism by organizing, leading in, and participating in it, by supporting the planting of churches at home and abroad, encouraging the work of evangelism in all the world, and giving financial support in ways deemed to be most effective and timely, recognizing that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The elders or overseers are responsible to see that the local church has an up-to-date and adequate constitution and confession of faith. They must not only think in terms of preserving the truth intact on paper for future generations, but also in a living way by training up others who will in turn preach the gospel and train yet more. 2 Timothy 2.2. And then he says this, in other words, elders must have eagle eyes to detect and encourage gifts, praying that future elders will be raised up for the church at home and especially gifted ones who may be sent into the world at large with the message of salvation. And then just two more, harmonious cooperation with the deacons of the church and encouragement of them and their responsibilities, maintaining unity with other evangelical churches, initiatives for evangelism and missionary enterprise. Sometimes people ask, what does a pastor do? I think that's a pretty good description. But I also say, who is sufficient for these things? And I am thankful for the Lord's help. But I am also thankful when the Lord brings help. And that's what we're considering in the life of our church. And as we consider that, we certainly want to consider the Lord's direction, qualifications, as we've considered in this passage and also 1 Timothy chapter 3. The particular qualification in verse 9 has to do with someone's doctrine and their handling God's Word. Is it enough to have someone who is described as verses 5 through 8 describe the qualifications? And the answer is no. Even as Paul gives the instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he includes one phrase, able to teach. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Paul's concern for Timothy and Titus throughout his letters to them, was that there was a focus on teaching. Paul gives direction as to who ought to teach in the context of the church. What should be taught? What should not be taught? How what is taught ought to be taught and the realm in which they ought to teach. Public instruction, private instruction, a person who is an overseer in the church, needs to be able to teach, and then according to this direction in verse 9 of Titus chapter 1, he needs to be able to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. That is his posture, and then that posture relates to his practice, the practice in the end of the verse, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. So we're talking first about devotion, but then action. Posture, but then practice. 
He's going to be using the Word of God to minister to God's people, to protect God's people. So I want to consider this matter of holding fast to God's Word, and specifically the first point that I want to draw attention to is the object of the overseer's devotion. Notice what it says, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word. And then Paul adds, which is in accordance with the teaching. So there are two phrases here in English describing uh, this devotion of the one who leads God's people. And I want to consider, first of all, the faithful word. What is the faithful word? Well, we would certainly expect it to be the Word of God, and it is. Uh, The faithful Word refers to what is reliable, what is trustworthy, what can be depended upon. And that is what is to be taught to God's people. God's Word is reliable, but man's Word is temporal, changing, alterable. God's Word is eternal, unchanging, infallible. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? When God declares that he's going to do something, and it is his decree to do so, he does it. He keeps his word. And so we really are talking about all of the word of God, but if we talk about not just the Word of God as a whole, but really what Paul emphasizes within his letters, we're talking about the message of the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. You've heard 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement. It is a reliable statement. It's a reliable word, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Seems that Paul is drawing attention to a statement certainly not original with him, and if you were to trace the, the essence of that teaching, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, you'd go back to Christ's own teaching in the Gospels where he said that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus said to those hearing him, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's coming to call them to repentance. And so the thought that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is a reliable word. It is a trustworthy word. It is a faithful word. And that word needs to be held fast by those who proclaim the word. They can't ever give it up, as Paul even said in Galatians, as we read this morning, that if someone were to come and preach another gospel than he had preached to them, that that person would, would be accursed. And so the one who takes the office of an overseer, becomes an elder, is a pastor within the church, needs to hold fast to that faithful word. The other emphasis I believe we see in verse 9 When it says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. I believe what Paul is talking about here is apostolic teaching. Certainly it is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as he trained his apostles, as he taught his apostles, he wasn't teaching them to go out and say whatever. He was teaching them to go out and proclaim who he was and what he had done and proclaim the good news as he had given to them and the direction that he had given to them. One person kind of translated or exposited upon this phrase with these words, holding fast, and this is the way the person put it, the faithful word which is according to the apostolic teaching. This is the words of the apostles, which were given their words by Jesus Christ, who was given his words by the Father. This is a message from God himself. Paul said to Timothy directly, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure of which has been entrusted to you. The truth is entrusted 
It is given to those who then take it, treasure it, but also pass it on. Paul, of course, was entrusted with the gospel by the mercy of God, the goodness of God. He considered that a privilege that he could preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then God brought Timothy along, and Paul was able to invest in Timothy and also Titus and entrust the very same gospel that he had received to them. And, of course, he taught them as well to pass it on. So there is actually a generational, you might say, influence of the word of God, the gospel message, the faithful word, the deposit of truth. Paul said, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so when we think about apostolic teaching. This, of course, is what the early church was devoted, them, devoted to, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What was the apostles' teaching? Well, again, it relates to Jesus' teaching and what Jesus commanded them to teach. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus said. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Peter even gets as specific in Acts chapter 10 as he is preaching to the household of Cornelius to specify what Christ had given him orders to teach and proclaim. As Peter preaches the gospel message, he says, and after speaking of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and the fact that he was witness along along with the rest of the apostles, he says, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And so this teaching that is given by God, the gospel message that came, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ, but then as Jesus taught and proclaimed and then gave that responsibility to the apostles, then they were to teach others, and as they were were taught, they were to receive, and they weren't to add or alter, add to or alter the message. It was a kind of a postman, kind of a messenger arrangement where you receive and you then faithfully deliver what you received. You're not making things up. And there are dangers, of course, even in our passage here when Paul says in verse 10, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision there on Crete. He says, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. That's the danger. Paul warned about the dangers of turning aside from the truth and preaching or proclaiming, certainly believing, anything else. You see that in Galatians 1. But he said to the Corinthians, When I came to you, brethren, 1 Corinthians 2, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except... Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my message and preaching, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And He also said to the Colossians, Beware of philosophy. Beware of philosophy. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you've been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. There were challenges there in Colossae. Certainly there were challenges at Corinth. There were challenges wherever. And so the overseer needs to hold fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with that apostolic teaching. Overseer is not to be preaching to felt needs. He cannot bow the knee 
to the idol of philosophy or man-centered secular psychology. He cannot succumb to the temptation to be modern. He does not preach Christianity as an option, but he preaches Jesus Christ as Lord and God. Yes, to God's people and then to the world around as well. He is not pragmatic in his approach, but he holds fast to the Word of God and God's Word alone. It doesn't mean, of course, that he can't appreciate or value teaching that has been given, that is faithfully presented, whether in terms of church history or even those who are preaching in the contemporary scene. In other words, there are those who are faithfully preaching the gospel, just as in Paul's day there was Peter, there was Apollos, there were others who were gifted in the church to proclaim the good news, and when the Corinthians started to get partisan about who they were following, Paul just said, they're all yours. They're all yours. If they're preaching and teaching the truth, they belong to you, they belong to God. As they proclaim the truth, you don't have to get partisan. If there's a blessing in Peter's preaching, Apollos' preaching, Paul's preaching, then receive it. But don't get divided over it. They're all yours. The overseer is though, to be a student of God's Word and certainly a disciple. If someone holds fast the faithful Word, which is in accordance with the teaching, the implication is that that person is a listener, is a learner, someone who hears carefully and then passes on what he has heard. The teaching that Paul is speaking of here, this faithful word which is in accordance with the apostolic teaching, that is what he holds fast to. He has learned it. He has believed it. He's seeking to further understand the truth. But this is his devotion. You can see that in Paul's life, certainly. Not only did he believe and preach the truth, he studied the truth, he wrote about the truth, And even in his early days as he came to Christ, he was preaching, as Galatians 1, the faith which he once tried to destroy. He came himself to an apprehension of the truth as he saw Jesus Christ. But then beyond his seeing and coming to know Jesus Christ, there was the application of what he had already learned in terms of Jesus Christ, now applying to the Gentiles And what a blessing it is that we have that teaching to this day. What a blessing. What a devotion Paul had to the Word of God. I think you can see that throughout his letters as he's citing Scripture after Scripture. Just a mirror, uh, not a perfect reflection, but a mirror of our Savior, who, of course, taught the truth, was devoted to the truth. Even in his moments of temptation and trial, he is quoting the scriptures to the devil. And on the cross, in his moments of great suffering, he is quoting the scriptures in terms of his suffering, fulfilling scripture, trusting in God, trusting in God's word. He was devoted. And God's word, because it is eternal, it is the truth, it is faithful and trustworthy, it's certainly worth our devotion. And you can see how this qualification doesn't just apply to an overseer. It certainly applies to the entire church. It's not just the overseer who holds fast to the truth. The one who is teaching God's people must hold fast to the truth in order to teach it accurately, to be able to exhort and urge God's people and refute those who contradict. But if you're listening and receiving, then it is right and good for you also to hold fast to that truth in faith. And of course, this demands faith. I love the example of Martin Luther, who when he was tested regarding his faith and he was put on trial and questioned about his beliefs, connection with the Word of God, his famous statement, As he testified, he said, unless I'm convinced by the testimonies of the Holy Scriptures or evident reason, 
For I believe in neither the Pope nor councils alone, since it has been established that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. He says, I am bound by the scriptures that I have adduced, and my conscience has been taken captive by the word of God. And I'm neither able nor willing to recant, since it's neither safe nor right to act against conscience. That's a man who's holding fast to the word of God. And he's on trial, and he's not going to let it go, whatever the cost may be. And there, of course, have been those who've suffered martyrdom because of their holding fast to God's word. And may God give grace to all of us, but certainly those who lead God's people to hold fast to the word. What does it mean to hold fast to the word? Well, I think it has to do with two things. I think it has to do, first of all, of a high esteem for the word of God. There's a thinking about God's word that recognizes it is indeed God's word, that it's elevated above man's word, and for that reason, there's a thinking about God's word that is not like anything else. These are not just the words of a man. We don't believe the scriptures were written by men only. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the one who holds fast to the faithful word esteems those words as they are, the very words of God, God who is majestic, holy, supreme, Lord, the eternal one, the God of heaven and earth, the creator, sovereign of all the nations, of all the angels. Just think of who God is. These are his words. They're not man's words. And so there is, one person put it this way, an unwavering adherence, those were his words, to God's word because of what it is. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. Her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. It's the same Greek word in the translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as the word that we're looking at here, holding fast. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Wisdom. A tree of life. Something that's able to give life, eternal life. And then it says, and happy are all who hold her fast. And that's an interesting word as well. The idea is giving your strength to, putting all of your force to that thing. And this is something that the person who leads God's people is constantly doing. That's the sense here. Holding fast is a present activity. It's not something that was done in the past, but it continues into the present. As I was reading through Jeremiah Burroughs' rare jewel of Christian contentment, he kept on drawing attention to what does the text say? What does the text say? The text says this. The text says this. Mark the text, he said. He's repeatedly going back to the words of God because of the value of those words. Those aren't just man's words. Sometimes we quote fellow servants, fellow sinners, as they speak, and God, of course, gifted them as they shed some light on the truth. But that's not the truth. It's not of the same quality. While it may shed light on the truth in some way, And so Job said, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Proverbs 23, 23, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. There's a high esteem for God's word. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and well, so the contrast is his attitude and devotion toward one master versus the other. The one who leads God's people, who is overseeing God's people, must be devoted to, have a high esteem, not only for God's word, but for the one who spoke that word. And there must be a constant faith, trust in God's word, and pointing others to it as well as in his own life. I love the example of Eliezer in 2 Samuel 23, who arose, Scripture says, and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and it clung to the sword. He, he couldn't get his hand away from the sword that day. They had to help him pry his hand away. Bunyan's description of that man who has the best of books, he's holding it in his hand. Don't let go of this book. You keep your hand on it, you keep your heart in it, be devoted to it, don't ever make light of it. You need to be careful about making light of God's words. God's words are a source of life to those who believe. To fail to believe God's words is sin. His words are not trifles, they are treasures. Do not trifle with the truth. So a holding fast, a high esteem. And because of that high esteem, a constant attention to God's word. Holding fast to it certainly would mean studying in order to prepare and teach God's people. But beyond that activity constant attention to it as you speak to other people, as you take it in in your own life. The same word that is used here with regard to giving attention to the word, holding fast to the word, used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's translated, help the weak or pay attention to the weak. The idea is to give to the weak who don't have the strength of maturity in the Christian life constant attention. The littlest thing could bring harm or disaster. And so the overseer needs to give constant attention to the Word of God. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So holding fast to the word has just got a practical effect in a person's life, in all of our lives, certainly in the one who leads God's people. They should be reading it. Jonathan Edwards said, Be assiduous, constant in application in reading the Holy Scriptures. This is the fountain where all knowledge in divinity or theology must be derived. Therefore, not, let not this treasure lie by you neglected. He also said, in order to this, ministers should be diligent in their studies and the work of the ministry, giving themselves wholly to it. Particularly, ministers should be very conversant with the Holy Scriptures. They are the light by which ministers should be enlightened, and they are the fire whence their hearts and the hearts of their hearers must be kindled. They should earnestly seek after much after the knowledge of Christ, that they may live in clear views of His glory. For by this means they will be changed in the image of the same glory and brightness and will come to their people as Moses came down to the congregation of Israel after he had seen God's back parts in the mount with his face shining. And I say again, who is sufficient for these things? As you think about pastors and pray for pastors, whether me or someone else, another pastor or a prospective pastor, pray that they would give themselves to God's word. And pray that as they give themselves to God's word, that they would give themselves to that relationship with God that would bring them into a place of ministry, whether privately or publicly, where it's obvious they've been with God. And they give others a sense of God. A sense of God. Not only that God is real, God is alive. God is present. 
Edward said, if the light of Christ's glory shines on them, it will be the way for them to shine the same kind of light on their hearers and to reflect the same beams which have heat as well as brightness. Ministers should be much in seeking God and conversing with him by prayer, who is the fountain of light and love. So this constant attention to God's word, reading it, studying it, not just for preaching and teaching, but personally for the person's own spiritual life. A pastor is supposed to take heed to himself and to his teaching. A pastor is supposed to pray, as one writer put it, as a private Christian. Not just praying to be a pastor or to pray inner session for God's people, but to pray for his own spiritual life and growth. You know this. Sometimes it just needs to be said. Pastors are sinners too. They need the grace of God, the mercy of God too. They need the forgiveness of God too. They are held rightly so to a standard that is appropriate as they lead God's people, but that doesn't mean they don't struggle with sin every day. Doesn't mean they're not tempted. Doesn't mean they don't go through trials. They need God's word. And as they plow through God's word, or they give their time to, as one writer said, dig as well as plow, use your spade, they dig down deep into those truths of scripture. There's blessing for themselves, there's blessing for others as they share that. And what happens as a person gets into the Word is their life begins to grow and become more like Jesus Christ. We reflect His image as we peer intently into God's Word, as we see the mirror of what we are and who Christ is, and we change. And we need to change. And stability comes. By God's grace and by His Spirit, Jesus promised it. He said, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. And certainly for the one who is in God's word, in listening to the words of Jesus and following the words of Jesus, there ought to be stability when trials come. There ought to be the ability to withstand. Now, we always need God's help. But the one, Jesus said, who has heard and has not acted according is like a man who has built a house in the ground without any foundation. The torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. So an overseer is someone who is hearing God's words, esteeming them for what they are, giving constant attention to them, but also obviously acting on them. It is to be an example. That's the point, I think, of the other qualifications, that the Word of God, to bring someone to verses 6 through 8 in that kind of a life means that God's Word has done its work. It's not in me. It's not in any man to do that. God does that. He does that in the life of any believer who draws near to Him, and He strengthens them to live in that way. What a wonderful thing when the one who leads God's people is truly a man of the word. What a sad thing if he is not. Should never be in a place of leadership if he's not. Ephesians says he gave some as apostles some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. 
As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. What a wonderful thing when this qualification is observed, recognized, and you can recognize within the life of a man that he does truly hold fast to the faithful word. Now, quickly, look at the end of the verse. So that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Devotion, posture, turns into action and practice. The Word of God equips him for action. It equips him for practice. What is his practice? Well, exhortation and refutation. You see that in the end of the verse. And it is with, notice, don't miss this, it is with sound doctrine. If he is holding fast to the apostolic teaching, if he's holding fast to the faithful word, then it is with that word he exhorts and teaches God's people, and it's with that word that he refutes those who contradict. He shows God's people and sometimes directly has to refute those who contradict the truth. One writer said the New Testament epistles overflow with exhortations to make sound doctrine the very heart of the Christian faith and ministry. Christians are reminded by Paul to be a good minister of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of good teaching, to keep as a pattern of sound teaching what was heard from him, to preach the word of God, 2 Timothy 4.2, to hold firmly to the trustworthy message while encouraging others by sound doctrine, and to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Christ's ministry, the apostles' ministry, the early church's ministry, all revolved around sound doctrine. So someone who's holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the apostolic teaching, is then able to use that healthy doctrine to urge God's people to help them to go in the right direction and to urge them to follow that. And doesn't that tell us our need today and every day? Why are we here today? We need to be urged. We need to be exhorted. We need to be strengthened. We are given His Spirit, but weekly as we gather together, God has given us the opportunity to look into His Word and be urged towards faith and obedience and righteousness because we need that. We need direction. We need the right way to go. But because of our sluggishness, because of sometimes our lack of faith or our unbelief, we need to be urged to act upon what we already know. And what we already know ought to be that sound, healthy teaching. That idea is being free from infirmity, or disease, and we're not talking about the body, we're talking about the soul. If God's Word, the doctrine according to God's Word, is preached and then believed, received, obeyed, it will be good for us. It will be good for you. Paul writes here, so that he will be able to exhort. The word that he uses is also in the present tense, and it means that this is something that's going on on a regular basis. Pastors don't just exhort on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings or Wednesday evenings. When when the apostles said in Acts chapter 6, we will give ourselves to the ministry of the word, it wasn't just saying we're going to get up in our pulpits and proclaim the word then. The ministry of the word is all the time. There is public exhortation. There's also private exhortation. And that's sometimes what we need. We, we may hear it, but we may need the additional influence of someone coming alongside of us and saying, I want to urge you. Sometimes in those, whether it's counseling or otherwise, there is a means of God's grace to us as someone points us to the Word of God and urges us to follow that. Paul said that here in Titus chapter 2. Notice 
Titus chapter 2, verse 6, just turn over a page. He says, likewise to Titus, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourselves to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters. Now, Titus could be doing that in the context of worship services, but I have no doubt that there were opportunities for him beyond those times, as there is for every pastor, to urge God's people to obedience. So a pastor is not just an informer. He's not just spouting off facts and information. He's not somebody who just loves people. He ought to be that. And he ought to have light as he preaches. But there's also that element of exhortation, of urging God's people to obey, of applying the truth so that we will live in the way that we ought to live. And of course, in connection with that, the overseer needs to be living the Christian life himself striving to be obedient to Christ, believing the Word of God, living out the Word of God, urging God's people, seeking to set an example. And I say again, who is sufficient for these things? But we need to press on to know the Lord, and we need to press on towards holiness. All of us do. The Christian ministry, someone has said, exists for the promotion of holiness. I'm doing this today, and I try to do it every Sunday as I, as I meet with you and as I speak with you and talk with you individually. Long ago, the Lord just taught through John the Baptist's example what a pastor is supposed to do. He's to prepare the people to meet the Lord. You are going to meet Christ face to face. You will stand before him. Do you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? I do. I know you do if you know the Lord. Well, then we need to spend some time in this book. May the Lord help us to be prepared. That's what John was doing. Jesus, of course, was on the scene. He was right there, and he was calling them to repentance, to turn from their ways, and to follow the truth. But the pastor, the overseer, the shepherd, the elder, is not just exhorting in sound doctrine, but he's also refuting those who contradict. And we're coming to an end here. Someone has said, a firm grasp of the truth is the indispensable preparation for him who would undertake to dispel error. And that was Paul's concern for Titus there in verses 10 and following, that there were problems on Crete. There was false teaching on Crete. There was rebellion being preached and proclaimed. There were people who needed to be silenced. And so the word of God is the truth. It must be defended. It must be defended against error. It's like what Jude says in his letter. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So there's an offensive urging God's people to holiness and obedience. There's also the defensive of protecting God's people, showing what error is so that we don't wander off the path and pursue a teaching or a course of teaching that's not healthy or good for us. The pastor, someone has said, must not only feed the flock, but he must warn the flock. He must not only be zealous, but jealous. And you just think about a shepherd with sheep. He's got to point him to pasture, show him the way. Here's the grass. Here's the still waters. But what happens when there's a coyote or a wolf? He's got to guard against that. He's got to show the sheep and protect the sheep. I was watching recently a farmer 
published a video of his using night vision goggles to eliminate the coyotes on his ranch, and he was able to, with that special night vision setup, to, to, to take care of 65 coyotes in one night. that were doing harm, killing his flock. He's protecting his flock. Well, how do we see the predators? How do we know how to counteract them? This book. This book. It shows us the truth, helps us to see the truth so we can accurately see what is error. And just like in Paul's day here, Titus's day, he says there are many rebellious men. He said to the Ephesian elders, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. They came into where God's people were meeting, and they were meeting with them. That happens. That happens. He says, not sparing the flock. And then he says, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So there are real dangers. That's why God does give us overseers and shepherds who spend their time studying God's word, exhorting, drawing attention to the truth, pointing out errors so that we will all stay on the path. If we wander away, by God's grace, they'll come and help us get back to the right path. There's a reason Paul didn't stop with verse 8 here in Titus chapter 1. And obviously, we need to make sure we give due attention to it as well. I am thankful, by God's grace, through our time in the last few years, that we have heard when our brother has preached uh, faithful teaching of God's Word. Faithful teaching. And that is no small thing. Let's pray. Lord, we trust that you are at work among your people. We thank you, Lord, that by your grace, you do lead your people, you lead your church. We thank you, Lord, for your leadership of us, your guiding us as a good shepherd. Give us direction even today as we've gathered together to worship you, give attention to your word, help us to follow it, obey it in our own lives as we come to apply even this passage and what you're doing in the life of our church. Help us to follow your wisdom and thank you for it. Bless in the hour to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to transition to downstairs in uh, just a, a few moments. I just want to give some directions before we sing.